And for Dean. I'm just going to... Glenn, where... Oh, oh, there you are. I'm just going to look at you all morning, if that's okay. Is that awkward? At all? It's fine. <laughs> uh, the reason why I bring up your name is I just want to uh, publicly say thank you for your words this morning. Uh, you've known me for the better part of 40 years as I've sort of traveled in and out at Wyzetta, and I'll carry your words for uh, a long, for the rest of my life, uh, Glenn, on that. And I, part of why I say that sort of private conversation publicly is it, it brought to mind the passage from Hebrews uh, where it talks about, uh, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, and let us not give up the habit of meeting together, whether <laughs> virtually or like this, but all the day, uh, all the more as we see the day approaching. And whatever else God's sovereignty means, and I think it means a wide variety of things, I think uh, among the things most importantly that it means in this crazy pandemic and election and all of the stuff that's going on, is that God's sovereignty means that he is the king of a kingdom that knows no end, that can never be threatened, uh, that uh, will never be cast aside, that can never be overcome. And so even as we meet like this and celebrate our citizenship in heaven, uh, meeting together towards love and good deeds, we're part of a kingdom that knows no end. So as goofy as we all look, and I'm in my welder's mask, and, and I can't, I don't even know any of you now because you're behind <laughs> masks like this. And that's not an anti-mask statement, Andrea. Kevin's going to be mad about that, right? Um, but I knew you, uh, even with your cool Lone Ranger mask this morning uh, as well. So it is a delight to be with all of you like this, and, uh, and God is still on the throne regardless of what happens here in the weeks to come. Uh, and Kevin has told me that you started a journey through the book of Acts, from what I understand, uh, and that you're going to be heading into that book for quite a number of weeks, probably months ahead. And it really is a, a pretty crazy uh, and relatively exciting book that chronicles the, the origins of, of our church from this small but very powerful seed inaugurated at the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And it begins to explode out into Jerusalem and then into Samaria and ultimately all throughout the different corners of the world. And, and it's quite a book in terms of what we see and what these early believers experienced in their Faith, I know my family and I coincidentally have been reading through the book of Acts. I think we are halfway through chapter 9 right now with the conversion of Saul to Paul when Jesus knocks him off the horse on the way to Jerusalem or on the way to Damascus and, and gives him a mission of ministry to the Gentiles. But as we've read, we've stepped back and, and marveled at these different events that actually take place in this book. We see the prison cell of Peter just open one night. The Pharisees try to chuck him in jail. He's like, no, thank you. And the prison cell just opens and he walks out. We see Stephen as he's being stoned and breathing his last. Somehow the veil of the heavens part for Stephen in those moments while still alive. And you can see into the heavens and see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father to greet and to welcome him. There we see uh, the disturbing story of Ananias and Sapphira being struck down by the spirit for deceiving the church. We see Peter stand up, this fisherman with sudden understanding and power and wisdom to be able to chronicle the entire history of the Jews at Pentecost. And then most recently we were reading the story of uh, Philip with the Ethiopian, and he is sharing with him a bit of the gospel. And when he's done, Philip is suddenly somehow whisked away by the Spirit into an entirely different part of Israel. I just think, I don't know about you, but I've experienced not one iota of this way of life of the early church. 
I mean, how cool would it be to sort of like share the gospel in Minnetonka? And then I live in the Minnetonka area. There's a lot of pagans over there, so we need to <laughs> share the gospel. Just, I grew up in Wayzata, so it'll never not be funny to rip on Minnetonka. Um, but if you're sharing the gospel in Minnetonka, and then you get done, and suddenly you find yourself standing on the North Shore. That's like what happened to Philip. This makes no sense. We've been marveling at this story as our family of seven has been reading it. And, and what it reminded me, was that there was little that they experienced in that early church that is akin to the experience of the church in the Western world today. In fact, if we were church shopping this morning, just to use an example, and we all went to a 21st century Western American church, maybe let's say at the nine o'clock service, uh, and then we decided to go and could somehow participate in a first century Jerusalem of believers service at the 11 o'clock hour, we would see things and experience things where the differences would be so immense that they would be nearly unrecognizable to us. Uh, And what that tells us, among many other things, is the church has adapted and and evolved and changed over 2,000 years. And not always in bad ways, But it's an interesting journey to sort of look backwards and see where were all those moments of theological or or philosophical or experiential history that kind of incrementally go from one to the next to the next and sort of get us here. I don't don't remember, I don't know if you remember the first grade game that we used to play in the classroom called the telephone game. And And you whisper something over here, right? And then those words travel around all the desks in the classroom, and they get to hear. And by the time uh, it's here, what you whispered here sounds really different. And, and we've gone through that process of adaptation and change. And the reason why I bring that up is when we read what we're going to read this morning, it's going to sound terribly unfamiliar, I think, to us in terms of what the disciples did when it was time for them to try to discern the will of God. At a very critical moment in the life and in the journey of the church, what they did is something that I don't think any of us would maybe ever do. So with that, Sarah, let's put up on the screen the passage that we're going to be reading from today, if you have that up there. Beautiful. Uh, so do we, are we still standing, Andrea, when we read the text, the scriptures? I love that idea. Let's stand for a second. Just don't stand in the way of my screen because I got to read it. (laughs) Okay, great. Uh, so this is coming on the heels of when Judas uh, had killed himself after uh, the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. They are down a disciple, and so the disciples need to figure out how are we going to pick the twelfth disciple to replace Jesus. And this is what we, or Judas, and this is what we read in Acts chapter one. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. And then here's the point. Then, what did they do? They cast lots. And the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the 11 apostles. You may be seated. So, let me just get this straight. The followers of Jesus that spent actual time with him when the word was made flesh and dwelling among us, 
These disciples, uh, the names we know so well, of whom cities are named after and statues are erected when it was time to make a critical decision on behalf of God's kingdom, they cast lots. <laughs> to discern God's will and direction in their life. I mean, we are Bible-believing, Bible-following Christians, right? And as we read the Bible, we see that they cast lots. And, and that makes no sense, I think, to many of us, uh, 2,000 years removed from this fact, because I don't know what your journey has brought in your life as you've wondered about God's will. But, but there's sort of this kind of, like, mystery, associated with, I just, I wish I could know God's will, right? It's sort of this mystical, maybe ethereal, or uh, kind of tricky experience to hear God's voice. I mean, don't you have to go on some sort of 48-hour silent re- retreat just to maybe, like, strain to get a whisper of God's voice? Or maybe you uh, have to look towards the Bible, of course, and I think you know me now long enough and well enough to know uh, how much I uh, hold to the inspiration uh, of scriptures and the inerrancy of scripture and that it is uh, an inspired document we need to guide our rule and faith. Churches that have departed from that, you can watch sort of this whole um, trajectory in which we move away from life uh, in God's kingdom and we move away from the text. But that said, the text doesn't seem to give us a, a great answer when we're asking the questions about who we should marry, what job to take, or whether we should buy a cat or a dog. It's just not in the Bible. I mean, Lil, where's Lily? Lily's here somewhere. She was, is she in here right now? Lily just got engaged, right? No, she, she left. Lily, wherever you are. Like, how did she know Corey was the right person for her? Did she open up Ephesians 12? I mean, there's no Ephesians 12, but did she open up somewhere and it said, thou shalt marry Corey? <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice if the Bible worked that way? Or maybe we talk to a trusted and reliable friend to try to hear God's voice, and sometimes that works, and sometimes it doesn't, but the first followers of Jesus, again, the one after whom we name cities and erect statues, they cast lots. And somehow they believed that God was in that very space with them. Directing their steps, you know, it's, uh, again, I referenced it already, but as we evangelicals, as we rightly should, we, we pride ourselves in being Bible believers, right? Bible followers. We will follow the teachings of scripture until sometimes if you're like me, we step back and think, huh, (laughs) I know this last week I took a little bit of time to sort of analyze my own knowledge of scripture and, and what I actually really know there. And, And I thought, oh, okay, if I'm being terribly gracious with myself, like really gracious with myself, Maybe I know and could speak somewhat intelligently about 500 or possibly even 1,000 verses of scripture. That sounds like a lot. And then I did the math. And there are um, some 31,000 verses of scripture. So let's say I'm overly generous to myself and I double the generosity to to myself from 500 to 1,000. I don't know if you can do the math quickly in your head, but what that means is that I know less than 3% of scripture. Less than 3%. I mean, I would have thought my thousand verses would have qualified me for sort of the Awana championships on ESPN, right? (laughs) I was ready to go. But young Jewish boys and girls during the time of Jesus, by virtue of memorizing the entire Torah, they knew more about the scriptures than I do with my fancy PhD. Less than 3%. They would destroy me (laughs) in the Awana championships. And thus, reading a passage uh, like this morning... 
casting of lots can remain somewhat foreign to us. Because by any measure, I am terribly scripturally illiterate. Again, I teach New Testament, Old Testament, Christian ministry programs to our best best and brightest evangelicals. I have fancy letters after my name, PhDs, Master's Divinity, all these sorts of things or whatever. And I'm a Bible-believing Christian. And if I'm generous to myself, I have a thousand verses under my belt and I know less than 3% of the text. Seems like a bit of a disconnect if I'm going to claim something then about myself. And so when I read, and I don't know about you, casting of lots, it feels more like some sort of witchcraft or horoscope or rain dance (laughs) as opposed to a reliable method of discerning God's will. And yet in the worldview of the disciples, it was definitely that. So I think of the invitation to all of us when we run across passages like this is what was going on? How do we understand the casting of lots? Can we crawl inside their mindset in that first century life when they really believed that God was with them in that? And so a little bit about casting of lots historically, what it was and how it was used in, in, the, in the time of Israel. It said this, it was a method used by Jews, as we've said, to determine the will of God. A lot of uncertainty what was entailed in this practice. Some scholars believed that they sort of threw some sort of sticks out there. Other scholars would say there were stones with markings on them. Other scholars would say that it was dice. But where they all agreed was that they somehow cast the lots and then the results about what they should do would be interpreted. After that, I began to read through some of the texts, and I think Sarah has a few of these passages. I'm not going to read them all, but the Old Testament shows up in multiple places, the casting of lots, and not just to determine what sort of coffee to drink, but the really important questions facing the nation of Israel uh, in in those critical times, they cast lots. Leviticus 16, God commanded Moses, Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. This is during the Day of Atonement, uh, one of the most important festivals and times in the nation of Israel. Numbers 26, Moses allocated territory to the tribes of Israel according to the male population as well as by casting of lots. Later on in Joshua, when they had to figure out some of the people that didn't have uh, their, their tribal lands connected to them yet, they cast lots. In the first book of Samuel, lots are used to determine that it was Jonathan, Saul's son, who broke the oath that Saul had made. The casting of lots somehow revealed that. There's no question, again, for them. And this is the verse that then just I've never seen before. Uh, It sort of blew me away. It says in Proverbs 16.33 that the lot is cast into the lap. What they tended to do is they would open up their robes in front of them and they would throw them into the lap. It says in Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from Yahweh. The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from Yahweh. And so all this mystery where I think we all desire to know God's will and direction for our lives, go away on a retreat, search the scriptures, go to a spiritual guru in some Bangladeshi mountain cave. I mean, do well, maybe don't do the last one, but do those things. But what they were opening up their robes. Wouldn't it be nice if you could buy some lots like that on Amazon Prime? I mean, wouldn't that be great? Just like, I need God's will for my life. I'm going to hit Amazon Prime. Two days delivered to my door is a reliable method of discerning God's will 
for my life. I, I would love it if it was that easy. And it's interesting you even study this in the many streams of Christianity that exist in our world today. As recently as 2012, the Coptic Christian Church in Egypt chose its pope through the casting of lots. <laughs> I was telling that to my friend the other day, to which he said, wait wait a second, there's a Coptic Christian church in Egypt with a pope? And I thought, yeah, I know, I didn't know that either. There's so many streams of Christianity out there with so much tradition and so many scriptures of which I don't know. Someone, maybe maybe Kevin, uh, Andrea, Kevin needs to do a podcast on all this. We'll throw him under the bus on, on this one. Okay, so that's the explanation of the casting of lots. And the question becomes then this morning, what can we say about all of that? And what I want to say is I am not now advocating for the casting of lots. I think there's got to be at least half of you that are going, is he going to like buy some dice and start rolling them? No, I'm not advocating for the casting of lots. But what we can say about this that I think is terribly important, it's revealed over and over again in the book of Acts. And I would say that is a statement that is central to our Christianity that what the casting of lots reveals is that the God of heaven is accessible and available to us. Let me say it this way. The God of heaven is accessible and available as a shepherd who leads and guides us through the exile of this life in a painful and broken world. And not only leads us and guides us through the exiled and painful and broken world, but he somehow then also empowers us to shine with his light in a broken and dark world to call back every one of his lost children safely home. That the God of heaven is actually available. The Lord is my shepherd, says David. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they know me. The God of heaven as an accessible Shepherd is actually, if we step back for just a minute, it, it, it is a staggering truth. The God of heaven is not some distant God who needs dancing rituals to make him move. He didn't just set things in motion, as the deists might say, and then step back. For the ancient Jews, heaven was not a place on some floating barge of gold just beyond the Andromeda galaxy. Heaven was the space in which God dwelled, and it was all around us, as close as our next breath, the thinnest of veils separating this realm from the realm of heaven. And so Paul writes, in him we live and move and have our being. And the psalmist David writes in Psalm 139, well, where, where can I go to flee from your presence? Where can I go? If I go to the heights of heaven, you are there. To the depths of the earth, you are there as well. I really can't think of a more life-altering statement than this one. The God of heaven is accessible and available as a shepherd to guide us and to lead us through this exiled and broken and painful world. But not just to do that for us. He somehow empowers us in the midst of the darkness with the light of his kingdom to shine his light in the world around us, declaring the praises of him for those who would be called back. That kind of statement can bring purpose and hope and comfort and guidance and safety. Even if we're stuck quarantined at home for 14 days, we're never alone. Never. Alone. Dallas Willard writes something terribly thought-provoking. He says, you know, the universe is ultimately a safe place. And it's not a safe place because bad things won't happen to us. Bad things will happen. To us, we live in an exiled and broken world. But in the midst of that, it's ultimately a safe place because God is always present, even when we can't feel him, even when he seems distant, even when our hearts are tired and weary and disillusioned, 
even when we wonder if a pandemic will ever end, the universe is still ultimately a safe place, for the Lord is our shepherd. And the same God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who led his people thousands of years ago, still leads his people today. I can't think of a more life-altering idea than that if we begin to let that in. And yet, may I suggest that to the great sadness of heaven, it seems that there are many Christian lives that are not staggered by that fact. I think most of you know that I've taught young Christians some of the best and brightest that evangelicalism has offered over these last 18 years at multiple universities in our city, whether it be Crown College or Northwestern or Bethel. And they're lovely kids. They have been taught the scriptures, at least, again, the limited percentage that we teach. They're trying to live a faithful life. They really are. They're beautiful young people. And yet, almost to a student, almost to a student, after uh, over 18 years, I find something that can break our hearts. Because in the midst of their good intentions, in the midst of their fervent desires, and in the midst of even their knowledge of the scriptures... When we scratch beneath the surface in the classroom, what I find over and over again is students, when they're willing to say, they say, my faith feels hollow. It's hollowed out. I have a faith of good intentions and fervent desires and knowledge, duty, responsibility, obedience. But, but, but why, Kapsner, is my faith devoid of life, of energy, of comfort, of freedom, of laughter, of compassion, of love. We sometimes read the very haunting words of Jesus that when he says to some of the people around him, you, you are like whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside, right? But, mm-hmm. but inside you're filled with the bones of dead men. And they crack open. And they know the scriptures. And they know their theology. But they crack open and they're like, but then why am I filled with anxiety and pain and turmoil and fear? Why am I hollowed out? I don't know if any of us can relate to that this morning. Slogging our way through, feeling hollowed out a bit. Um, the election stuff certainly has a capacity to hollow us, hollow us out. Pandemics hollow us out. Slogging through. In the midst of all of that, we end up asking in class this simple question. What, what if it was true that God was actually real? I mean, what, what if it was true? that God was actually real? Would that change things? And, and it's such a stupid question, isn't it? it? Except that I'm so often stunned by the response in the classroom. People step back and say, oh. And then you know what they say, and catch this phrase now, this is the thing that just, that, that, that catches me all the time. They say, you know what? I realize that I'm in relationship with ideas about God but I don't know what it means to be in relationship with God himself. The accessible and available shepherd of heaven throughout all the generations who would even go so far as in the mundane throwing of sticks, casting of stones, or chucking of dice would be willing to interact with his children, the very God of heaven. Dude, I have no idea who that God is. I'm in relationship to ideas about God. I don't know who the God of heaven is. I don't know him. 
He's as near as our next breath. He interacts all throughout the book of Acts, not just in this story this morning, but you will read over and over and over and over again. And if you let your mind attend to it, what you will see over and over and over again is an accessible and available God of heaven who is leading his children through crazy stuff, way crazier than any global pandemic. And he leads them along the way. And they suffer, and they're persecuted, and some of them are killed, and it's difficult and awful, and yet they're following the voice of their shepherd. They didn't just know the Bible, they knew him. And it occurred to me, uh, again this past week, that it wasn't for theology that God came and died. Though I think you know me well enough to know that I love theology. My, my lifelong dream would have been to be transported back with uh, C.S. Lewis and Jared Tolkien and sit where they sat and just talk about these things. But God didn't come for theological conversation or biblical knowledge. He came for a relationship. An unfiltered one. Tender, compassionate with us. God breathed the breath of life into humankind in Genesis 2. He told Noah to build an ark. He called Abraham and Sarah into the unknown. He burned a bush with Moses. He wrestled with Jacob. He came in dreams to Joseph and to Daniel. A voice came to a young Samuel in the temple. His angels bring messages. Jonah ran from him, and a Babylonian king could even hear his voice. He was a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The Lord is my shepherd, writes David. And then God even allowed for a temporary season for his own presence and majesty to be contained in the Holy of Holies, in the center of Jerusalem, in this temple, so he could be accessible and there for his people. There is no other God in the history of the universe that ever did anything like that. It's what sets apart the Judeo-Christian God from all other gods. He is accessible and available, even in such things as casting of the lots. And then he did something crazier. (laughs) God became flesh and dwelt among us. He didn't send a chart or a theological text. He incarnated. And we beheld his glory. And the shepherd was now made in likeness to a man. And he said to everybody, don't follow me or don't follow ideas about me. He said, follow me. And to make that possible in ways that were sort of heretofore unseen... On a bitter and brutal Friday night, God incarnate began the long walk from a lonely garden to a desolate hilltop, carrying not just the heavy wood upon his shoulders, but in ways that I will never, ever fully understand. He carried all of that which causes separation from us and him, the sin of every beautiful image-bearing child whom he loves. He carried that on those same shoulders. And then... (laughs) He invited every force of hell to come and have its way. And it bruised him. And it broke him. And it killed the God of the universe. And Paul writes, he emptied himself, becoming subject even to death itself, death on a cross. And for the briefest of moments, hell thought itself victorious. And for the briefest of moments, it looked like that every relational God had been cut off from his people. But what hell didn't know is that he actually came and meant to die. He took the incomprehensibly brutal blow. And the darkness took the bait. 
And when it did, he descended into those depths of hell, and he broke open their very gates, and the graves were open, and people appeared, and God exploded out among his people, and the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Thus, the presence of God, housed only for the high priest once a year, began to explode, we will read next week in Acts chapter 2, in Pentecost among his people, because death could not hold him. The veil tore before him, and he silenced the boasts of sin and grave, and he would make a dwelling place among his people. For the God of heaven, his energy is for relationship with us, not about ideas, but in relationship. And he did all of that. And you say that story and you read those passages and we go through all of this sort of reality of the best news that has ever been given in the history of this universe. And somehow in the midst of all of that, my students are hollowed out. How how does that happen? How does it happen that you and me and maybe on a late night after another long day, our nerves are a bit shattered? And maybe we know the truth about things. And maybe we're in relationship to ideas. But the God of heaven is there even in the casting of lots. And we'll see it over and over again in the book of Acts. It's actually a mind-boggling move, uh, I think, for many of us to go from relationship to ideas to relationship with God. I think uh, many people uh, never take that step. Often it's because we don't know how. We haven't always been equipped to think in this way. I, I, I think about what would it be like if I raised my children not just in the teaching of the scriptures, which I care deeply about and I want for them, but what if day in and day out, I was, my wife Hallie and I were shepherding our children and say, so let's talk about what it means to hear the voice of your shepherd in your life. To say yes to following him in the midst of pandemics and elections and uncertainty and all of the turmoil. What would it be like to have a whole life in which you're led by the shepherd who says that my sheep know my voice and they will continue to follow me in this world? I think another thing that causes us to be skeptical or cynical, understandably so, is that there's plenty of people, right, throughout church history that claim to hear the voice of God and then people end up on an island drinking poisonous Kool-Aid. But... Just because that's true, and I think unfortunately we sometimes think that it's only the pastor who sort of is the new modern-day Moses that is the only one that can go up to Sinai and hear his voice. It's the we of the people. God was very clear. I've made my dwelling place with the people. And even in saying all of these things, I'm mindful that if somehow we could even just crack open that veil a little bit this morning on a random October day with a little bit of very unfortunate snow outside, that if we could somehow crack open the veil like Elisha did in that beautiful passage, and he's like, you know, give my servant eyes to see, and that veil cracked open, they were like, oh, and they couldn't believe what they saw. For heaven is not somewhere out there in the Andromeda galaxy. It's as close as our next breath. In him we live and move and have our being. And just because people have led us astray with that doesn't mean that it isn't true that the shepherd can lead us that we can learn to attune to his voice, that, that he is present and accessible in our everyday affairs, even in the casting of the lots. To say otherwise is like saying real chocolate doesn't exist just because I experienced some version of Hershey's masquerading as real chocolate. I think the other thing I know for me, I don't know for you, but it's terrifying uh, to think about inviting the God of heaven to have his way in our life. I love the past uh, the, in the Chronicles of Narnia when the, the children are talking about Aslan with the beaver family, right? And I know we reference this, this, uh, this writing of C.S. Lewis often, but as they're hearing the description of this lion that they can, they kind of know in their, their mind and they're hearing what this lion is like and, and, and the, the children say to the beaver family, oh my goodness, is he safe? 
And the beavers say, well, of course he's not safe. Whoever said anything about being safe, he's a lion. Of course he's not safe. But he is good. And I think about how terrifying it is to let the God of heaven have his way in our lives. Because to follow him into the unknown means that we're probably not going to have a happy life. None of his early followers did. To follow God into the unknown would mean that maybe we won't have a place to lay our heads, said Jesus. And in this world, you will have trouble. And I don't know about your life, but I'm looking to minimize the trouble. I don't like it when scripture says that. I'm going to stay safely in my 3%. But then Jesus says this uh, right after that, in that beautiful promise in the Gospel of John 16, he says, in this world, you will have trouble. But then, does anybody know how this ends? But take care, for I have overcome this world. We have a shepherd who not only can lead us and guide us, but in crazy ways, as it's all throughout the book of Acts, he will lead his children to shine his light in this world, to call back everybody safely home, anybody who would have him. And when we move from the relationship to the ideas to sort of the the gentle and ongoing surrender to the God of heaven, what we read in Acts is crazy things begin to happen. And I don't know about you, but it would sure be nice in the midst of the craziness that's going on in our world if crazy things from the kingdom would begin to happen. And light would shine in this, what seems like ever-increasing and thick darkness. And I want to know my scriptures. I really do. But I want to know God. I want to know his voice. I want to be able to say the things with Paul. I consider all of these past things, all of my fancy degrees, all of my right heritage, all of these things about which he writes in Philippians. I, I, I have all of those things, but you know what? I count those things as a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, being found in him and being just like him. Paul greeted the risen Lord, uh, was greeted by the risen Lord on the road to Damascus and knocked him off his horse, changed his life. I'd like to know that, God. Because maybe I would start moving in the times where I feel hollow to something that would be akin to fullness and life and comfort and peace and, dare I say, even laughter and freedom. I'm mesmerized by those early believers in the Roman Colosseums as they were being killed and torn apart by lions or crushed by the Roman gladiators. When we read the stories of their faith, they held hands together, greeting their oncoming death. They greeted it with the songs of their faith, not unlike what we were singing just this morning. And somehow they knew something. That of the best and brightest of my evangelical students, when they say they're hollowed out, they're like, oh, I want to know that. The power of his resurrection. I don't always know what to do with that. It's in the scriptures. (laughs) It's a whole world of faith with which I'm too often unfamiliar. So what do we do with all of that? I don't have the answer to the question. I know uh, for... For me, I often think, so how can I begin to take steps in this direction? What's the method? (laughs) How do I do that? And unfortunately, the Bible doesn't have a method uh, for beginning to engage with the voice of our shepherd. Uh, Doing the Acts method of prayer is maybe no no more or no less efficacious than just simply talking with God about our ice cream that we're eating, um, if God is actually available. And when I get involved with methods about how to do this, you know, I try to capture God in some way. I'm like, if I just do X, like go on a retreat, then God will do Y. Or if I do X, then God will do Y. And I'm always constantly capturing God, right? I put him in my little trap. I'm like, this is how you move. Uh, I will do this, you do that. And then pretty soon I'm making an idol out of the method, and now I'm removed from God again in that. I don't know the answer to the question. I do know that there is a rich history within our church 
over 2,000 years with which we can engage, engage origin in the third century, one of the church fathers talked about being able to discern the spirits and knowing when the thoughts come from God or from the enemy or from yourself. John Cassian in the fourth century had a whole series of things that talked about starting with humility, starting with a willingness to surrender. You begin to analyze whether or not that is God's voice in community. John Climacus talked about humility coming from discernment and discernment giving insight The Eastern Church looked for the wisdom of the mystics and the ascetics as they went out and they came back, uh, and they would hear from God in those places on behalf of the community. The Roman Western Church used authority and hierarchy to discern his voice. Ignatius of Loyola and the Renaissance has rules for discernment, including imagination, reason, biblical connections, experience, testing of the spirits, on and on I could go, even to who has most informed us in our practice on this morning, the stream in which we swim among the many streams of Christianity, people following Jesus throughout history. Our stream is most fully defined by the figures of people like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, who said scripture is a divine spectacle through which we can discern God's leading, and they're right. So many different ways of hearing God's voice, casting in lots in the scriptures, dreams or visions, silent retreats, solitary monks, the inspired word of God itself. The point of the morning is that when those disciples threw those lots, and I'm not advocating for the throwing of lots, but what those disciples knew in the throwing of lots is that the God of heaven was accessible and available. And I want to know that. So to start wrapping it up this morning and think about what's ahead in the book of Acts as they set this foundation for hearing God's voice. And the worship team's going to come up. We're actually going to sing a song a little bit about sort of the not necessarily wanting to follow Jesus in these ways. As I think about the events of our time, just want to say one more time that to be able to shine the light of heaven in the increasing darkness of this world, it seems like we need to be more than just in a relationship with the right ideas. Though, again, I love the right ideas. I don't know how to deal with these things around us, how to discern the pathway forward. I have no idea how to handle an election. None. I know for sure that the kingdoms of this earth are not the same as kingdoms of heaven. (laughs) But I don't know how we're supposed to interact as believers within the kingdoms of the earth. There's many different ideas, and I'm sure people will write me all kinds of emails now saying, Capsner, this is what you're supposed to do, and that's fine. <laughs> but boy, do we need wisdom and discernment in these places. So I'll close again with the words of Dallas Willard. I'll write something different this time. He says this, For the one who makes sure to walk as closely to Jesus as possible there comes the reliable exercise of a power that is beyond them, in deal, beyond them in dealing with the problems and the evils that afflict earthly existence. Jesus is actually looking for people to trust with his power. He knows that otherwise we remain largely helpless in the face of the organized and disorganized evils around us and thus unable to promote his will for good in this world with adequate power. And so Jesus says, but now I am with you. Go therefore and invite people to follow me, not ideas about me, follow me into all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. And remember this, remember, don't ever forget this. Lo, I am with you always. Me, not ideas about me. I am with you always as your shepherd, even until the end of the age.